This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Whether it's at the ballpark or at home. That ball's smoked to center field. Big moments can happen anywhere, anywhere. Thanks to all the frontline workers. Thanks to those sacrificing now. Here's a Soon, we can cheer together. Together. Stay safe, Houston. You want to hear this ridiculous question we got on Twitter, Robert? Sure. The following is a production of Great News. Astros Radio turned my wife into a fan. Steve Sparks. Robert Ford. She doesn't really like baseball. Should I keep her? That is crazy. No, don't keep her. Robert Ford and Steve Sparks. That's ridiculous. Fielding your baseball questions. Dump her. The opinions of Steve Sparks do not reflect the opinions of the Houston Astros Radio Network. The Houston Astros. Doesn't like baseball. That's silly. Radio Network. Back to Astropod, the official podcast of the Houston Astros. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Astropod. I'm Todd Callis, joined by my co-host, Steve Sparks. We're going to have a special guest again today. It's going to be another Astros legend. We heard from Billy Wagner last week, and today we catch up with Roy Oswald, who actually started the no-hitter in 2003. That uh, Five pitchers later, Billy Wagner would finish. But before we start talking about Roy and his career, time to welcome in Steve Sparks. Sparky, how you doing? I'm doing great, Todd. How you doing, man? I'm good. Life is good. So we got some good news. We've had some tough news during this pandemic. We've lost some legends in Jimmy Wynn and Bob Watson, but some great news coming from the home of Art Howe. It was. He, he got released from the hospital. As a lot of you Astros fans know, that uh, uh, the coronavirus uh, got Art Howe, you know, and he, he'd gone to the hospital. Uh, I'd actually texted with him uh, the, the day before he went to the hospital, and he's saying he was having a terrible time eating because his taste buds uh, uh were gone basically he had gotten very weak so uh such great news that he was able to get those ivs and some strength back and starting to eat again to where uh, they were able to let him go back home so for he and betty uh nothing but our love uh and appreciation for one of the nicest men we've ever met one of the nicest guys regardless of whether he ever wore a baseball uniform and right. he's so accomplished in his baseball career <laughs> yeah. but i think the crazy thing is it almost takes a moment like this. It's almost like a preview of what people are going to say about you when you're gone, because he probably had no idea how many people he's affected in his career that he probably heard from in the last week or two. That And, and that's great to see because no one deserves to have more friends than Art Howe. That's kind of funny because after he went back from the hospital, I said, Art, please don't text me back. I just want to let you know that I'm so happy that you're back home and healthy, but don't text me back. I just don't want to put more burden on him because there are so many people reaching out right now. Yeah, it's great to hear. And congrats uh, to the Art Hall family and for everybody to pray yeah. for them. And uh, we're so happy that he's back and, and getting better every day. So here we are. We're now on Memorial Day. And now more and more things are opening up in the state of Texas. Things 
Uh, we're getting into the next phase of coming through this pandemic. And I am actually very, very excited, Sparky, to announce that since the first time uh, since February. You're getting a tattoo. That would mean I would have had a tattoo in February. Oh. So, yeah, no, not that. But okay. I don't have, as I get into my 50s now, I don't have a whole lot of hair. But what I do have <laughs> has grown out has grown out since February in really just unattractive ways. So I'm finally getting a haircut uh, tomorrow, and I couldn't be happier. I think my wife's probably happier. But have you had your hair cut at all the last couple of months? I have not. So we're in the same boat. And I was going to say something because I saw you on Zoom. Uh, I was going to say something. You started to look like Don Knotts when you when you took off your hat, uh, and I felt like it was time. You look like uh, you're auditioning for Shakiest Gun of the West. So I'm certainly happy that uh, you're you're getting your haircut. Where are you going? Do you have a personal barber? I don't have a go-to person that I go that I have. Uh, just spending a couple of days here in Florida, so I have a go-to person that's been cutting my hair from like ten years ago. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. Every you talk about your hair, you're, you're losing your hair. Is it thinner or yeah. Okay. All thinner. the above thinner, not growing as much. And yeah, especially thinner up in the crown area. It's weird that it, it thins out like at the top of your head, but man, that ear hair is not going away. Is it? <laughs> no, it's not. No. Ear and nose hair. Is definitely <laughs> that's uh, a cruel, so that's a cruel, cruel trick. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I am looking forward to getting my hair cut. Uh, there is one person, though, on our Zoom happy hours that we do for Anheuser-Busch. There's only one person that has worn a hat for all three of those Anheuser-Busch happy hours. So I don't know what's happening with your hair because you're the well, only one. I've worn a hat on all of them. You know what? Uh, think, like yeah. some other things. I don't know. It's just whenever we've done those, I think I, I've just, I just haven't had time to probably shower or something like that. But yeah, I've. It's for no other reason. My hair is super long. I have not gotten it, got it cut, and it's unruly and thin, like like you had mentioned with yours. But uh, for no other reason than just uh, lazy. <laughs> All right, so I'm over in Florida, as I mentioned. One of the reasons my wife and I came back here was we pretty much did everything we possibly could to the home in Houston, and we wanted to tidy a few things up with the house in Tampa uh, okay. that we you know visit every once in a while in the off season. So we're cleaning some things out, and I go through some old files that I had, um, you know, that dad and his uh, second wife had given me after he passed. Uh, and one of the items in there is a souvenir program that dad must have saved from all the way back in 1965. It's an Astrodome first year no. souvenir program. It's unbelievable, Sparky. I, I'm like touching this thing like I can't wait to show Mike Acosta. I'm sure he has one, but it is so cool. And it's pristine, huh? It's in pristine condition. It's an Ast It's just a picture of the Astrodome, and below that is the scoreboard, and it says Astros versus Phillies on the scoreboard. There's a welcome to the Astrodome on the first page uh, with Judge Roy Hoffines and the chairman of the board, Bob Smith. There's stats about the uh, Astrodome. There's places to talk about dining in the dome, customer service. They actually have a page where – they list everybody on the roster and what their family situation is. Single, married, kids, all that stuff. And here's the kicker. The second to last page is concession prices. What's a hot I'm dog? 50 cents? 35 30 cents. cents for a hot dog. Wow. 30 cents. For, how about this? A draft beer 14-ounce cup. Dollar fifty. Thirty-five cents. No way. A half-pound wow. hamburger. Is sixty five cents. How about a uh, ham and cheese sandwich? Twenty five cents. 
75 cents. So there, ham and I cheese, mean, so that's kind of expensive. Ham and cheese, 75 cents. Draft beer, 35 cents. If you got a beer from a vendor, which was a 16-ounce cup, it was 40 cents. 7-ounce soda, 15 cents. 12-ounce soda, 25 cents. Quarter pound burger, 40 cents. If you went up to a half pound burger, 65 cents. I mean, it's a, and here's the craziest part. All these concession prices, it goes all the way down. Cheese sandwich, corned beef sandwich, corned beef and cheese, ham and cheese. At the very last two items are aspirin for 15 cents and anison for 25 cents. No kidding. How about that? <laughs> yeah. So it's just so cool. I mean, I mean, I feel like it's a part of Astro's history. I'm so glad. I knew it was somewhere. Like I keep coming across things along the way, but I love all this old stuff. And um, I actually had a chance to go into the Astronome a couple years ago, and I know you did too. That to me is just it, – it's something breathes uh, in that building when you go in there. There's so much of an aura and history involved in that stadium. There is. You know, and, and a lot of memories and recollections of, of games. And it was just something you never experienced back then, playing indoors and, and seeing – uh, the colors of the of the seats, even I, I thought that was just something that you know really stamped uh, what that building was like. There was nothing like it. I loved it, and I know you grew up there, loved it, but it was just so different. I don't know if the players loved it to, to begin with, and I know the outfielders running around on that hard hard surface didn't do them any favors, but uh, it was certainly different. And in Houston, Texas, playing indoors makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, I was only what four or five years old when we left there, actually four years old when we left so i don't remember, Do you remember it lot. at all i you know what's funny i remember because i've heard a soundtrack of the exploding scoreboard yeah and it was yeah. like something in the deep recesses of my mind it yeah. brought back memories yeah the pinging of the the guns being shot yeah and then the yeah. bull the bull sound yeah like that was like something i totally remember being a little kid uh, but most of my memories as a little one were of Astro World across the street and not, not the Astrodome. But uh, here's what's funny. Every, we talk a lot about how hitters were impacted at the Astrodome. And uh, we've mentioned that with Jimmy sure. Wynn, with Bob Watson, all that stuff, and what their numbers might have looked like had they played at Minute Maid Park. We rarely talk about it in the inverse, and uh, unless maybe we talk about Jose Lima. But Roy Oswald, our guest today, started his Astros career right at the beginning of Minute Maid Park uh, mm -hmm. the year after 2001. Imagine if he was like a decade earlier, as good as oh he gosh. was. I mean, he, he didn't give up many home runs anyhow, but with his pinpoint control and throwing in that stadium, his numbers, I mean, he was on the Hall of Fame ballot and probably deserved more uh, credit than he got, but he, his numbers could have definitely been Hall of Fame worthy. Not that they aren't now, but even more so had he pitched a few years in that dome. Yeah, that was just the thing is everybody was so in awe of Roy when he first got to the big leagues. I remember Bagwell talking. I remember Biggio. All those guys were talking about how unfazed Roy seemed to be no matter who he was facing. And I remember one time a reporter asked uh, Oswald if he pitched to Babe Ruth how he'd pitch him. He said, I just pitch him inside pretty good. And, and then I would just make him chase high fastballs. And that sounds like that would play perfectly into the way the game's Played right now, right? Yeah. Pitch him inside and, and get him to chase high fastballs. And that was the thing about Roy is he could make you hit it on the ground when he wanted, and he could make you chase uh, the high cheese when he wanted. He, he could get you out in a lot of different ways. He's a guy I think could, could pitch in any era. And, yeah. uh, you know, we look forward to catching up with him. But he's the guy that would take the ball every five days. He would throw 200 innings every year. We kind of rave about it now with Justin Verlander because Verlander's a throwback. But uh, mm. back then – 
I mean, uh, Oswald did that on a regular basis and nobody even talked about it. And he didn't go for the punch outs. He was just trying to get deep into the ball game. That's throwback in itself. Time now to welcome in a guy who will be inducted into the Astros Hall of Fame whenever that ceremony will be. It was supposed to be this summer, but uh, can't wait for that moment when it finally happens. The great Roy Oswald joins us. Roy, how are you doing right now? This is the first question we ask everybody. Strange times, but how's it going for you and the family? Oh, everything's great here. Um, you know, finally, I guess you'd say past a hump of this um, stuff, um, you know, going around, but um, everything's going great here. Hey, Roy, thanks for doing this. Uh, what have you been up to, and how are your daughters doing through all this crazy stuff? Oh, everybody's great. Um, you know, um, school year got cut down a little bit short. They they cut the school year here a couple of weeks just to um, – they did the homeschooling, you know, for – you know, to a couple of months and then they end up, you know, instead of going to the last day of school, I think they cut the school year down about a, a week or two. Well, Roy, what keeps you busy these days? What, what do you do most days? Uh, right now, um, I've actually got a storage business that I've kind of started up and we're actually uh, uh, right now while I'm talking to you guys, I'm uh, guys are waiting on me to put up a storage, <laughs> a storage building. Um, I've got, I don't know, I don't know, probably about 200 something units and I'm kind of doing that on the side. Um, I've got a farm that we're still farming about a couple thousand acres of farmland, soybeans and corn. Got another business that um, we've started up last year that's an integrity business that's um, focused mostly on pipeline services for inspections and stuff like that. If you needed a coating inspector, a pipe inspector, um, any kind of inspection for his um, gas and oil company, uh, we've started that up. And um, been pretty busy, actually. It sounds like you got a lot going on. I mean, I don't know how, if you're busier now than maybe when you were playing. It sounds like it's a, a around-the-clock venture you've got going. Yeah, it's a little bit more going than when you're playing. You know, you're so focused on baseball that you really got one, you know, one focus, and that's it. But it seems like um, after you retire, you kind of get your hand in a little bit of everything. So it's been nice. You know, I'm I'm the type of person that has to um, has to stay pretty busy. I get I get bored real easily, so um, I, I keep my hands full of something. How often uh, are, are you staying in touch with, with baseball these days? I know you were in spring training a couple of years ago. I think you enjoyed that uh, from our conversations. You enjoyed being around this team in particular. They're so good and fun, but uh, how much are, are you involved with baseball now? I'm, I'm actually, I was helping the high school here in town at Starsville Academy. Um, the last two years, I've been the pitching coach here in the high school. Uh, we missed the um, state playoffs by one game last year, and then um, this year it got cut short, so... Um, it's been, you know, far as that, I, I, I've been around it a good bit, far as professional. Uh, I haven't really, you know, been around a game since um, the last spring training I went to a couple of years ago there. But uh, I follow it here and there. You know, I, I have stuff on my phone where I can keep up with a lot of stuff going on, but I don't follow it really, really, really closely. How is it on the coaching side? Are you working mostly with pitchers or is it all across the board? Uh, mostly with pitchers. I, I, I'd handle the pitching part. I kind of get them on a program, kind of similar to what I did. Try to, you know, according on if they play a position and pitch or if they just pitch, um, give them a workout, you know, lined up where um, where they can be, you know, most successful at whatever they do as far as um, pitching or playing position. But We've had a couple of guys sign, you know, colleges and stuff. It's it's been fun, you know. The the kids are a little bit different than um, when I was growing up, but um, it, it's it's been a lot of fun. What was it like growing up in Weir? I mean, you guys didn't even have a, a baseball team, Roy, uh, when you were coming up, and they 
from the urging of your dad, they developed a, a high school baseball team because you were a big prospect. You had a great arm. Yeah, uh, we, we was really known for football. We won a lot of state championships in football. We had a lot of NFL players come to my school, uh, the size we were. And, you know, we only had 30 students in each class. And uh, out of my um, high school football team, we had um, um, three guys that was drafted by the NFL. So we had a real, you know, like I said, we had a really good athletic program in, in football, but never really had a baseball team um, until my sophomore year. My dad was um, loved the game of baseball, wanted um, the school to get, you know, baseball started because we had enough kids to play it. And um, he finally went to the board and the board, you know, said as long as it didn't cost the school, you know, a lot of money, then uh, we could start a baseball team. So boosters got together and we ended up, my dad cleared the field, ended up building the field um, with booster money and stuff like that and started a baseball team. The first year we actually went all the way until the, until the state game and um, got beat out right before we went into the state game. But, you know, that's what I was telling these kids here, here in Starkville. They, uh, you know, they come up to me after they pitch three or four innings and, you know, say they sore or, or their arm hurts or something, you know, crazy in that aspect. And um, I told them, you know, my, my three years in high school, um, my first year, we played 16 games. I pitched 14 of them and never came out of a game. I never knew that there was such a thing as a bullpen, you know, in in high school. Pitched every, you know, every Monday and every Thursday and never kept pitch count or anything like that. And I never had a problem with my arm. You know, I, I, I did enough, worked enough and, and conditioned myself enough. I never I never really had a problem with my arm. Talk about high school football for a second. You, you talked about it, it was known we're Mississippi, uh, more of a football team, and you guys won the state championship. But one of my favorite stories that you've ever told, Roy, was about an audible that you and the quarterback, you were a wide receiver, but you and the quarterback had uh, something else in mind. It, was it a homecoming game? Yeah, it was actually a rival. The next, the, the town over was. Um... You know they they've been talking. They haven't. They've never beat us in football in thirty something years, and that's all. They they had a real good football team that year, and they was talking about how they was going to beat us this year or whatever. So me and uh, the the quarterback got together and 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 we audible to play. And, and end up scoring a touchdown, but we was already winning. You know, we was already winning 20 or 30 points. I forgot to score, but at halftime, I knew that we weren't going to get to play after half because the team that I actually graduated with in 90, in 94 team, we had, you know, a fullback went on to play with Arizona Cardinals. Then we had a, a tailback that ended up going to sign with the Titans. I mean, we just had a, a tremendous team. We was humongous for a 1A school, but anyway, uh, we audible and ran the score up a little bit, and that's actually the first <laughs> when I got a I got a taunting penalty for running down the sideline, taunting the other players, and our coach made me pull diesel tires a hundred yards ten times, and that's actually the first time I blew my leg out, <laughs> and it, and it made me have problems all the way through the big league until I got it fixed. Oh my gosh, pulling a diesel tire a hundred yards! Yeah, in the heat yeah. of a Mississippi fall. That was our punishment. If we got in trouble, we had to pull tires a hundred yards. After about the third one, it was more like laying on the ground, pulling about five feet, and then you know, <laughs> trying to scratch and claw. You can do to get it there. When you when said you... there was a couple guys that ended up in the NFL, what names? You said Arizona fullback, and then a tight end. What were the names? DeCento Miller. He was a um, tailback. He ended up coming over here from Mississippi State and played really good for Mississippi State. Tailback at Mississippi State, and he played. Got drafted by the Titans. He was only there. I think a year or something, somebody got in some trouble or something. And then Dennis McKinley was a fullback for us. He was in my class. Um, he was went to Arizona. He played fullback a little bit. I think he ended up getting six or seven years in. And then Alvin McKinley actually was his brother that was in 11th grade. Uh, he played for the Browns and the Broncos for five or six years. We just 
I mean, we were stacked. We probably had two or three other players that could have went and played that just didn't pursue it, you know, after uh, after high school or after college. You mentioned the size of your school. How small a school was we? And at that level, a lot of guys play both offense and defense. Oh, yeah, we played both sides. Um, like on offense, I played receiver, and then on defense, I played defensive back. You know, we only had – I had 31 students that I graduated with in my whole class. So, you know, in, in three grades, we only had 90 90 students, you know, 95 students, something like that. And and you say if it was half and half girls and boys, we only had 50 guys to choose from to put on a team. So you had to play both sides. Roy, from what I've heard and what you've told me is that you were pretty small coming out of high school. So probably not a lot of looks, but you got a chance to play at a junior college. When did you know you had a chance to go uh, play professionally? You know, no one really around me growing up in a, you know, 60 mile radius that, you know, never got to play uh, minor league ball or, or even a big league, you know, big league level for sure but that one thing that, that that i was blessed with when i was born is just to be able to throw you know throw a baseball hard and even coming up i had a brother that was two years older than me he would um i would always play in his age group because when i was in my age group they couldn't catch it you know i only got to play two years of t-ball because you know standing on first i uh, hit two or three of them in the face and they kicked me <laughs> off the t-ball. <laughs> they kicked me off the t-ball team <laughs> So um, they ended up moving me up. You know, I was, you know, around seven years old when I was playing nine and 10 year old. And then once he moved up to 11 and 12 year olds, I was only nine. He'd move, they'd move me, my dad would move me up and play on 11, 12 year old. So I always played an age group older than I, I was. But it seemed like I always, you know, wanted the guy that was pitching, you know, out of everybody there, even the older guys, I was one of the harder throwers. So it just kind of stuck with me, you know, going through as far as being able to, um, compete at a little bit higher level than I was supposed to be. And um, I really didn't believe I had a chance to play in the big leagues until um, after I got to junior college. Um, when I got to junior college, a lot of these guys that went and play, you know, that was playing at these 5A schools that was all Americans and all this kind of different things, you know, they were striking out just like the guys that was in my league. You know, I was going still pitching, you know, complete games in college. There was only, I think, out of the starts I had in college in two years, there was only two games that I came out of in college. Every, every other one, I pitched the whole game and, you know, strike out anywhere between 13 to 17 guys, you know, in a, in a, in a game. So I kind of figured out then, you know, I'm, I'm throwing the ball as hard as the guys on TV. The guys are missing it like a lot of guys on TV. So I'm thinking, yeah, you yeah. know, if I can hone this a little bit more and, and get a little bit better as far as command wise, there shouldn't be a you know reason I, I shouldn't be able to play at the next level. What do you remember first of all when you when you got into the minor leagues? They gave you a pretty good signing bonus for a 23rd rounder. You know, they, they knew that it was going to take a little bit to get you signed. But you were throwing harder and harder, like you said. But what did you notice when you got to play against guys with wooden bats? Seeing these guys that you you know saw at the College World Series, um, you know, standout players and and different things like that. Those guys, you know, had holes just like anybody else does. And once you was able to throw three or four pitches where you want and command the ball, you know, it's a whole thing of pitching. And and kids coming out of a you know high school or college or a small college or whatever. They see this and, and read into it and think they can't play at the next level. And with with me, I never thought that these guys was any better than I was. You know, I, I thought if I can make my pitch, there's nobody on the planet should be able to hit it. And that's just kind of the approach I took when in, when I went into the minor leagues. And the wood bat exposes a lot more than that metal bat. You know, when I was coming up, they had a negative five uh, big barrel bat. It's like a Flintstone bat. You know, they were pretty much using. And once you went from that to a wood bat, it was just easy to, you know, get inside on guys and, you know, break bats and, and make them miss a sweet part of the bat. And I really figured it out, 
you know, as far as taking speeds off and moving the ball up and down, when I got to double A, kind of everything kind of clicked and fell into place. And I started pitching deeper in the ball games, not trying to strike everybody out, you know, the first pitch, you know, instead of uh, working a count, um, trying to get them to swing a pitch and first, you know, first pitch or second pitch where I get a ground ball and try to get through some innings. Because I started winning a lot more ball games in my minor league career later. I mean, in double A AA and triple A, um, because I was getting deep into the um, game. One of my pitching coaches was Mike Maddox. One thing that stuck with me all the way was he actually bet me every game I went into double A that I couldn't get into the ninth inning with less than 100 pitches. You know, being a competition in kind of competition, I was steadily trying to get into the ninth inning, you know, with less than 100 pitches. And I started winning more ball games because I'm in the eighth inning and the other starters already out and bullpen's in. So next thing I know, I'm in the eighth and ninth, eighth and ninth, eighth and ninth, and I'm winning games, you know, one after the other. And it just kind of led into the big league same way. Um, you know, I felt like if I could out, outlast the other starter, then – you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat their bullpen. If they have to put their bullpen in before I come out, I'm gonna beat their bullpen. And and it happened a lot. That's that's the way I won 20 games. That is a that cool is. story for so many reasons. Because now they call a complete game with less than 100 pitches a Maddox because of Mike's brother Greg and his ability to throw complete games with less than 100 pitches. So he challenged you to get to the ninth inning with 100 or less. Round Rock was then the Double A affiliate, right? That's where you were pitching in 2000, before your, before your Olympic team dream came true, and then that's where you met Bob Watson, right? In Round Rock. Yes, Bob was. Um, you know, when they was putting together the Olympic team, one thing that I liked about Bob, I wasn't a first rounder, you know, and I was 23rd round. I wasn't a big prospect um, until I got to Double A. Then I started kind of getting in the prospect, you know, category, I guess you'd say. But everyone was wanting to put all these first and second rounders on the team to go through the Olympics, and you know, they weren't really doing as well as some the other guys so bob said i don't care what round they've selected in or what what happened if they're throwing well and 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 they're and they're doing their job for as pitching infield whatever we're going to put those guys on a team i don't care if they're a first rounder a hundredth rounder or whatever um we're going to take the best of the best over there out of minor league so and that's what he did you know he came in he didn't look at the guys that was just first rounders he looked at the guys that could play and and that's the reason we want to go medal uh, the year was 2000 but you guys were a lot of no-namers. Uh, you had Pat Borders, who was a veteran catcher on the team. But outside of that, it's just a bunch of minor leaguers. Cuba's heavily favored. What do you remember about that experience? Yeah, uh, you know, going into the Olympics, um, you, you never know what you were going to, you know, what if you're going to be first, second, third, fourth star. Nobody really cared. You know, it, it was all about winning. It was, you know, you didn't get paid any different. You get moved up none or, or whatever, like like minor leagues was. So. You know, the whole thing was about winning. And um, when Tommy took over as the manager of the team, he pretty much brought us in and said, hey, these nobody believes in you guys. The media, they don't think you guys can win because you're not, you know, top prospects. They think you don't have a chance against the Cubans. And I'm going to show them different, and you guys are going to show them different. And Tommy had a way of putting things where you believe you're going to, you know, win every game. And uh, we went over there as a group, and um, we didn't have, you know, we didn't score a lot of runs. But the pitching was, you know, tremendous over there. Uh, I think as a team ERA, we had like a, a one ERA in the ones or something like that as a team ERA and just had tremendous arms, sheets, you know, threw lights out against Cuba. I got to pitch against Korea to put us in the gold medal game. It, it was it was a lot of fun. You know, you got to meet a lot of guys. Some of the guys have been in AAA for a while that just didn't quite, you know, break over the, the big league level, but was great, you know, great players. And uh, we had a great team over there. Let's back up one year. It was the, probably the, the one time that you had real arm trouble. You, you had an achy shoulder and you thought, 
And I think you even told your wife that, that you were going to have to call the doctors pretty soon, but something happened and suddenly it just went away. Can you tell everybody about that story? Yes, I was in um, the Midwest League and um, I just missed part of the Midwest League because coming out of spring training, I had a some type of calcium deposit under my shoulder blade and I missed um, the first four weeks of Midwest League. Well, when I got up there, I don't know if I changed my mechanics a little bit to try to pitch around some of the pain in my in my shoulder blade or what, but I kind of changed my mechanics a little bit. My shoulder started hurting um, probably, I don't know, five starts into it, but I was winning. I think I started out like, you know, four and one or five and oh, something like that. I was winning, but my, you know, shoulder would hurt all game. Well, I got where, you know, I was, wasn't telling the team this, but I was taking muscle relaxers to pitch. So I didn't have to miss anything because I came up, I never missed a game. You know, I always, I always played. I never really was sore or anything. So I kept pitching and I ended up toward the end of the season. I think I was, I don't know, 14 and three there or something like that. I pitched the last game in the playoffs and I knew something was wrong. I mean, it, nothing ever hurt this long and, and this, this much pain, you know, I couldn't throw bullpens in between. So I came home for about two weeks it bothered me doing everything, you know, lifting anything like over my head or even going to the grocery store and trying to get, you know, something off the top shelf. It would bother me. So I told my wife then, I said, uh, you know, if this don't get any better, I, I'm going to call a doctor next week. I got to do something and maybe get it fixed in the off season. Maybe I won't miss the whole year next year. Well, I went outside and had an old um, truck that I had bought to hunt out of, paid like $1,500 for, and it was missing like when you started the engine it would it wasn't ru running smoothly well i worked on motors all my life growing up so i knew it had to be either it was shorting out or spark plug or something like that wasn't firing right so i'm checking all the spark plug wires on the uh, motor and i happened to grab the one that had a it had melted against a manifold anyway it was exposed the wire was as this motor was turning, it's throwing, I don't know how many volts it's throwing through me. I mean, it's, it's a lot. I can tell you that. <laughs> so anyway, um, I jumped back when I jumped back this thing, I probably held this thing for five seconds. Maybe when I jumped back, I had to rip the spark plug wire out of the motor to get off of it. Cause it wouldn't let me, um, uh, uncontract my hand. My hand contracted around it when it was shocking me cause it was making the muscles tense up. Anyway, when I jumped back, it was almost like instant my my shoulder had no had no, no pain in it whatsoever and i was thinking to myself there's no way this just happened well within two or three hours i, I couldn't feel anything i mean i mean my shoulder felt like it was a hundred percent and from that day on i've never had a problem with it instead of tommy john surgery you could have developed your own surgery <laughs> i was, I was <laughs> working on a car surgery yeah i talked to the doctors when i got back to houston um that spring training and was telling them the story and you know, saying I know this wasn't tendonitis or anything because it was the way it, you know, was hurting or, or everything I was doing. They said it could have been, you know, something in your rotator cuff where you had a, a scar tissue or something in there and it just broke it loose or something. I don't know what it did, but whatever it did, it fixed it. And then, as we said, that was 99. You go on to 2000, your Kissimmee for eight starts before Round Rock. And then that season ends with the amazing Olympic run and you guys win the gold medal. Uh, what are your, where's the gold medal now? How, when was the last time you saw it? And do you guys still keep in touch with that group? I got to think there's a special bond forever with that 2000 Olympic team. Yeah. Um, um, you know, not everyone, you know, keeps in touch, but a lot of them do. Um, I, I talked to Ben Sheets a good bit. Um, some of the guys on there, Kurt Ainsworth, I see a good bit here and there. 
It was it was it was a great group. Uh, I think they're actually coming out with a movie pretty soon. They've ca- contacted me two or three different times about different things that they're going to put in this uh, movie. It's kind of like I think this is called Miracle on Grass, kind of like the Miracle on Ice when um, we beat the Russians back in '80s. I think it was. So uh, it should be a uh, should, should be a movie coming out pretty soon. They was asking you know who you want to play your part and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so it should be a pretty interesting. Who, who do you want to play you? I don't know. I got to thinking about it. I don't know. Um, I wish. Uh, Robert Redford was still young. I'd put him out there. But Roy, when you look back at it, uh, early on at Minute Maid Park, it seemed like a lot of the pitchers were intimidated. But for sure, there's no doubt about it that you were the first pitcher to to really pitch well at Minute Maid Park and to become a true ace. How did you do that mentally? You know, coming out of um, uh, when I went to AAA, I only pitched there for a month. Uh, when I got moved up, a lot of guys was having problem with Houston. Uh, for the ball traveling and and different things, and I think a lot of that was because because they pitched in the dome and um, the dome was you know a graveyard, and they went from that to 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 Minute Maid and it was just a big eye opener because those fly balls that were getting caught at the wall or on the track or dying or or whatever are now going out of the park. One thing my dad told me growing up, he said if you make them hit it on the ground, they won't ever hit it out. Well, it made <laughs> it made a lot of sense, and that was kind of the approach you had to take in Houston. Is if you could keep the ball on the ground, you know, you you had a lot of success. But if they do hit it in there, don't let them hit it to the pool power side. You know, make them hit it in the center of the field because our park's huge in the field, in, in the center. You know, four twenty six. Um, it takes a you know a really good shot to get it out of there. And I think uh, the whole time I played in Houston, I probably didn't see six or seven home runs go out dead center. And um, if you keep the ball in the middle, middle of the field, you, you was going to be successful. If you could keep the ball away from left field, um, you're going to get hurt a lot, especially if you're a fly ball pitcher. So, you know, I never really went into the park thinking, oh, my God, it's a small place or, or whatever. If you throw quality pitches where you want to, guys are not going to just continue to hit you, you know, all over the yard. So you joined the Astros in 2001 after just five starts in New Orleans that year at the AAA level. And then you begin that run. You were uh, second in the rookie of the year that year, fifth in Cy Young. You were top five in Cy Young five times in six years. Uh, you mentioned double A and, and things really starting to click. Were you surprised with your early success and the fact that uh, your first five, six years uh, went as well as they did? I wouldn't say I was surprised. Um, I felt like um, that the things that I could control, um, I did, you know, for as having yourself ready to play when, when spring training started, um, having a good idea of what to do going into a ball game. Um, studying guys, um, how to approach different guys. Um, you know, a lot of guys, you know, think that just because you're a rookie, you, you're not going to be able to compete with the guys that's been in the league four or five years. But I felt like that I had the stuff um, to compete. It wouldn't matter if I was, you know, 22 or 23 and they're, and they're 30 or whatever and they've been around the league a, a while. I just had the confidence that my stuff was better than, than what they could hit. You know, it didn't matter who stepped to the plate. I remember um, I faced Tony Gwynn, I think, in 02, 03, somewhere in there. And um, they put him in. I don't know if he was hurt this game or whatever. They put him in a pinch hit. He only had, I think, a one at bat against me. But I had him two strikes, and he was a little bit late on my fastball. And I don't know if he was just trying to set me up. So I was going to throw a slow curveball and then come back with a fastball with him. 
And when I threw a slow curveball, he just kind of flicked a bat and it and it hit a little blooper over second. I was so mad. I, I remember thinking, "You kidding me right now? You know, you had a chance to get this guy out, and you, you know, should have just went with your gut instinct, just kept throwing heaters and trying to get him, you know, punched out on the heaters." But Brad comes in and he sees me that I'm, you know, mad because I give up a single to Tony, and he goes, "Do you, you know this guy is probably the best hitter you ever, you know, ever played the game?" And I said, I don't care <laughs> who it is. You know, my mentality was, uh, you can't hit me if I have my great, you know, if I have my good stuff, you can't hit me. And um, that wasn't being arrogant or cocky. It was just being confident in yourself because, you know, you've done everything in the world to prepare yourself to do it. That was just one of the, in, you know, instances through my big league career where I felt like um, I prepared myself to be better than the guy at the plate. That is such a great attitude. And I, I think, Unfortunately, not a lot of guys have that. It probably allowed you to become the pitcher you were because if Tony Gwynn steps up there, there's a lot of guys thinking, man, oh man, I'm in trouble. But you're so ticked off that you gave up that hit on a curveball. Uh, you mentioned that was in like 2002. So you're only like 23, 24 years old. And that was a stretch where you're making 34 starts, 35 starts, 35. You had a little blip with injuries in the uh, 03 season. but uh, And you mentioned earlier how you went from a small high school with very few kids in your graduating class, uh, Holmes Community College, member of the Bulldogs baseball team then, and then you're drafted. James Farrar, an Astro scout, saw you at Holmes. Uh, you were thinking of going to Mississippi State. Were there other teams that had seen you there? Was James one of the only ones? And how tough was that decision? Uh, Sparky mentioned they offered you pretty good money as a 23rd pick, but how tough was that decision for you? You know, it was pretty tough, um, especially um, I grew up a Mississippi State fan and, and not living too far from the stadium. Got to, you know, go see uh, Will and Palmero play a lot and uh, just had a really good program there. Still, you know, have they, they built a new field there now, and, and it's just it's almost like a AAA stadium. It's just it's a beautiful. But anyway, you know, growing up Mississippi State fan, it was a hard decision to, to skip school, but uh, the Astros started throwing more and more money out there, so um, I thought, you know, uh, it'd be crazy to turn this down, especially when you got twenty dollars your name at the time. So, um, you know, getting to go, you know, getting your your foot wet in, in minor leagues and uh, getting a kind of a head start on other guys where you have the best instruction you can get, and with with organizations got players that's played before, and um, getting to go and and get your feet wet at, at a young age. I was only. I think 20 when I came out of junior college. Um, I was I graduated when I was 17, so I actually was 19 when I came out of junior college. To get into um, you know get into the system and, and learn the system and, and and get going was was a big help too um, at a at a at a young age to be able to get in the big leagues you know quickly. Right, I'm not sure if it's a coincidence or, or not, but when Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit come over to the Astros in 2004 and 2005 that you just happened to win 20 games in, in each of those two seasons. Did they incentivize you to, to take it to another level? Yeah, you know, I didn't know anything about e either one of them. You know, I, I, I've seen their name and, and, and followed them in baseball as far as, you know, um, player-wise, but didn't know them personally. But um, getting those guys over there those two years, you know, it, it, it goes back to the mentality of not letting anybody beat you at anything you do. And, and uh, when those guys came over there, you know, a lot of – talk was about you know clemens because he's one side youngs and won 20 games before and and pettis won a bunch of playoff games and pitched real well for the yankees and you know on a national spotlight for us being with in new york and different you know different things that that way but i knew in my heart that i wasn't gonna let these guys beat me at at, at anything they do so 
that's one of the reasons I think I won't push me to win 20 those years is because those guys was, was pushing me as much as I was, you know, pushing them and wasn't about to let those guys outdo me. So, um, it was a blessing, you know, getting a pitch against guy. I mean, getting a pitch with the guys like that, um, just to see their work ethic and how they go about the game and learn things from them. You know, my whole career, I got to play with some big, big time players, um, on position wise and player and and position and pitcher wise, um, you know, getting a pitch with Pettit and and Roger and and Roy Holiday and um, guys like that caliber, it just makes you as you know makes your performances and and your whole atmosphere different going to into games, preparing yourself, um, being ready to play and uh, and pushing yourself even more um, amongst each other. What an incredible Astros career you had. Not many people will ever appreciate how important that game six was in 2005, especially after all the near misses for the Astros in 80 and 86. And then uh, in game five, what happened at Minute Maid Park with uh, a chance to wrap things up for you to go out there in game six and deal against the Cardinals and, and take them to their first World Series. Uh, that has to be one of the things that forever will be etched in your mind. Yeah, you know, it's just uh, being, being able to, um, you know, bring a city to this first World Series was just, especially Houston, um, you know, there, there was a, a real big football city. They started, you know, following the Astros um, when it seems like, you know, when they was getting real close and getting into playoffs and it was always, you know, getting beat out by the Braves or, or first or second round here and there and just getting over that edge getting into a world series i remember you know for many years three or four years straight we sold out almost every game for three or four years straight because the fans started getting into it and they just started becoming a more of a baseball city and uh, you know they're doing a really good job over there now as far as um uh, winning you know winning and putting a great product out on the field and um you don't ever forget the little things that kind of went on through your career the older you get and more you kind of remember and it just you know speaks volumes for houston and where they're at right now and you mentioned you played with a lot of big time players for you to go into the astros hall of fame alongside some of the greats including lance berkman it feels Kind of fitting since you guys officially retired as Astros on the same day. But uh, what were your thoughts when you heard you were inducted into the Astros Hall of Fame? You know, it's a big honor, uh, especially, you know, getting put with the names that's up there for sure. Uh, I've been kind of teasing Reed a, a lot about I can't believe me and um, Lance are not going to get a jersey up on a rafter up there. But <laughs> he uh, he's done a real good job over there, and they're, they're doing a real good job. I, I asked him, I said, if I, if I have to come back and win one game, I will if I can get my jersey retired also. And uh, he said he may take me up on that. But, you know, it just means a lot, especially the player caliber players that was there with Bagwell, Vizio, Nolan, Mike Scott, all those guys that's been in the Hall of Fame. Just getting to be associated with them is pretty tremendous. But we can't wait that to see That was Roy Oswald, legendary Astros pitcher. No pitcher with more wins sparking so in the first 10 years of the new millennium that Roy Oswald and most of those came with the okay, Astros. What a pitcher he was and what a bulldog mm -hmm. mentality he had. Well, getting a chance to, to watch him pitch and do his thing uh, it was something to behold. Uh, one of the fiercest competitors in baseball over a stretch of about 10 or 12 years. Uh, certainly, you know, on one hand, I think you could count the, the number of pitchers. He's on the short list. Um, I certainly should have gotten more consideration in the Hall of Fame. One and done just doesn't seem right for a pitcher of his caliber. But, uh, man, was he fun to watch.
Yeah, and I mentioned it to him with the fact that he's going into the Hall of Fame this year with Berkman, the fact uh-huh. that they were retired the same day as as an Astro, and the fact that both of them lasted one year on the Hall of Fame ballot, which is absurd when you look it's at absurd. both of their numbers. Yeah, it right? does. Yeah, I don't understand. So obviously it has something to do with the market that, that uh, the Astros play in, but certainly less notoriety for some Hall of Fame type players. So, you know, it's, it's going to come down to maybe the, the Veterans Committee at, at some point, someday to, to recognize what great players they were. Yeah. So I feel like as we wrap up this edition of Astros Pod, I feel like we kept expecting there to be more news. And now that we've hit Memorial Day and Memorial Day week, it's a shortened week. I, I feel like something has to happen. We cannot wait until June, until we hear something. So I've got to think that within the next day or so, we're going to get some concrete news as to how things are going to move forward. Yeah, most deals are struck, you know, at the last second. You know, everybody's trying to get uh, the best deal for themselves, and rightly so. So I'm with you. I'm expecting something to happen very quickly, and uh, players will get back to uh, spring training 2.0, as they're they're calling it this time around. And uh, we'll get back to work soon, too. So I can't wait. Yeah, we don't have any video on you, but are you wearing the uh, fire engine red jacket from Memorial Day? <laughs> I am. You know, I'm going to yeah. break it out. I actually, uh, there's a high school sports magazine here in town, the Vipe Awards, uh, that uh, they asked me to say a couple of things. And I broke it out for that, too. So just special occasions, Todd, I would say. Uh, it would be Mother's Day, Memorial Day. Fourth <laughs> of July. Maybe the eve of your birthday. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Sparky, as always, great talking to you. Uh, hopefully I'll see you sooner than later, and uh, we'll do it again soon. All right, man. Thanks for doing this. That's Steve Sparks, and that's another edition of Astro Pod. Houston. We know these are uncertain and unprecedented times, but we will get through this. We will get through this together. Together. It is important that we all take the necessary steps to ensure safety of our loved ones and our community. You're the best fans in baseball. The best. And we love you. We love you. Baseball will be back. And we cannot wait to see you. Stay safe, Houston. For the H. It's for the H. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.